Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies and Liquidware. And now for some news. Dell Technologies World was held this week in Las Vegas, Nevada. And with it came the announcement of a partnership between Dell and Microsoft to bring VMware products to Azure with a, quote, native supported and certified VMware experience. This could seemingly enable folks running VMware in their data center today, which let's be honest, is the majority of enterprise customers who run products like vSphere, vSAN, NSX, and vCenter, well, they'll be able to also run those in Azure, as I said, in a native supported and certified VMware way. It's a pretty smart move by both. This will allow people to more easily port their on-premises data centers into Azure with a already familiar management experience. ZDNet reports that Microsoft also announced that VMware Workspace ONE application management platform is now part of the Microsoft 365 ecosystem, which means Workspace ONE users can manage and secure features in Office 365 across devices thanks to integration with Microsoft Intune and Azure Active Directory Premium. And sticking with announcements from Dell Technologies World, the Register has reported that at the conference it was also announced that there's a new pay-as-you-go on-premises model to provide enterprise customers with a private cloud as a service offering, allowing VMware Dell EMC customers to run VMware products such as the earlier mentioned vSphere, vSAN, NSX, and others on EMC hyper-converged platforms paying monthly. This is similar to HPE's GreenLake service that was launched back in 2017. This is pretty interesting as VMware on cloud is closely aligned with AWS and is also providing a route for AWS to get into the on-premises data centers and private clouds today. So it appears Dell and VMware are extending their private cloud offerings to attract more customers. I haven't worked in consulting in about three years. I'm not sure how much appetite there is for a monthly charge model like this or how popular HPE's GreenLake has turned out to be. It'll be interesting to see if there's much uptake for this. Dell EMC and VMware also announced that the first solution within the Project Dimension family brought to market is going to be a collaboration with Dell EMC VMware Cloud on Dell EMC. VMware's SDDC, or Software Defined Data Center platform, uh, integrates it with Dell's EMC's enterprise class VX rail hyperconverged infrastructure, delivering combined hardware and software offering as a service to data centers and edge locations. It's stated that they are still finalizing the exact hardware configuration and is expected to be generally available in the second half of this year. Ars Technica has reported that Windows 10 May Update, or version 19.03, has increased the amount of storage required to install the update. Previously, the 32-bit Windows 10 had a minimum storage requirement of 16 gig, and 64-bit Windows needed 20 gig. The minimum has now been bumped up to 32 gig for both the 32-bit and 64-bit editions of Windows 10. Part of this growth may be due to a new behavior that Microsoft is introducing with version 19.03, which is to ensure that future updates install without difficulty by permanently reserving 6 gigs of disk space to ensure the install is successful. 
While this will avoid out-of-disk errors when updating, it represents a substantial reduction in the usable space on these low-storage systems. And as the report suggests, if your system can't be upgraded, it will be stuck with version 1809 for, for the remainder of its supported life. And that's currently set for May 12th, 2020 for Home, Pro, and Pro for Workstation Editions, and May 11th, 2021 for Enterprise and Education Editions. So if you're at the absolute limit on your low storage systems, kind of in a difficult spot. However, a lot of low storage systems would be on traditional thin clients. And if you're running Windows 10 IoT edition, the new disk requirements do not apply to that. Advanced installer version 15.9 has been released, which brings with it support for Windows Sandbox, support for ASP.NET website and web apps for Visual Studio extensions, support for adding temporary files using the command line, as well as some enhancements for MSIX and their EXE repackager, with many bug fixes included too. Advanced installer also built a free tool called Hover that allows you to run natively installed applications inside of an AppV or MSIX container. So launching those apps into that kind of virtual containerized space or bubble. So this next one is less of a news story and more of a comment really. Forbes posted an article with a pretty snarky tone about a change to the way that Microsoft is handling its Windows 10 updates. You may recall many episodes ago, I talked about an announcement that Microsoft were going to take a more logical approach and simply not install a month's patches if they detect it's likely to cause issues on your workstation. I think it's a good thing, but Forbes apparently do not. It seems if Windows updates breaks people's desktops and apps, that's Microsoft sucking at their jobs. And if Microsoft tries to prevent that by not installing the patch, that's also them sucking at their jobs. I get it. It'd be nice if they just got it all right first go around, but maybe someday. I doubt it. Things are getting more complicated, not simpler. In fairness, they're in a pretty tough spot. It's a no-win situation. And to be fair to Forbes, the actual issue mentioned in the article around drive assignment with the May 2019 patches for Windows 10 is pretty worrying. It has the possibility of messing up your drive mappings, and you are recommended to ensure any USB thumb drives are removed during updates, which... To be fair, I would recommend for any updates anyways. It's not like you like image a desktop and leave a USB key in there or do major updates and leave a USB key in there. You really shouldn't. According to motherboard.vice.com, Slack have publicly stated they are a target for nation-state supported bad actors. This comes at a time when the company is preparing to go public, which is important to state for potential investors. Slack said that it faces threats from sophisticated organized crime, nation-state, and nation-state-supported actors. According to an S1 securities registration from the company filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission, which was published online today, these threats are impossible to entirely mitigate, which really is no surprise. News of these types of breaches are becoming more and more frequent, and in fact, Slack was breached in March 2015, as the company points out in its S1 filing. For four days, an unknown person or a group of people had access to Slack information that included usernames, email addresses, encrypted passwords, and other information. In response to that, Slack introduced two-factor authentication to its services following shortly after. The article goes on to warn that Slack does not feature end-to-end -end encryption 
And so it's important to remember anything you put in there is potentially accessible from those in your organization and in the event of a breach to outsiders too. And if you're a fan of Slack, but your organization does not allow it and is forcing Microsoft Teams on you, or even if you aren't familiar with either and you're just starting with Microsoft Teams now, I noticed this week that Microsoft have shared a great blog post and video by Ayatanj showing some of the features and benefits of using Teams. I was having kind of a hard time moving into Teams after using Slack for a while, and I found the video pretty informative. I'll share a link to that with this episode, which is episode 70 on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links, as I do with every episode. The Verge has reported that users of Microsoft's new Chromium-based Edge browser started noticing a prompt to download Chrome when trying to use Google Meet. Google Meet is, of course, Google's enterprise messaging service. It led to speculation that Google may be blocking the browser from running some of their services, but it has been reported that Google doesn't have a block list, but they do have an explicit allow list, with browsers and services requiring that explicit allow, and it's likely that Edge will be allowed the service in future, as a Google spokesperson said they see the Chromium adoption as a positive. Cisco have announced that they will be rolling out Wi-Fi 6 enabled devices. This comes just three weeks after the announcement of Netgear Nighthawk AX4, which I talked about on the podcast. Wi-Fi 6 is expected to become a standard by 2022. If you're in the market for a router at the moment, it may make sense to buy one of the Wi-Fi 6 devices to help future-proof yourself. Azure AD Entitlement Management is now available, allowing you to automate employee and partner access, requirements, approvals, and auditing. It also provides a great ability to manage accounts in Azure AD at scale, completing changes and actions for many individuals and many groups pretty easily. Azure AD Entitlement Management works with Azure AD B2B to enable collaboration across business partners. Employees from a business partner can request access to resources using the same access packages and Microsoft's policy engine, including provisioning their accounts upon approval by a business sponsor. This makes it simple to grant access to a specified set of resources for your business partners while knowing your processes are compliant and secure. Seemed like a pretty big thing that was missing within Azure, and it's pretty cool that it's there now. This next bit of news isn't necessarily new, but it was new to me. I just saw it pop up on my Twitter feed this week, and it appears that Microsoft posted an article about VDI support for Microsoft Teams that includes a condition in the installer to install to C program files rather than the user profile for a VDI scenario. This is based on the old all users MSI property. Setting that to one ensures an install to the per machine location. Graham Cloley reported that last Friday, Docker announced a security breach that has exposed credentials for up to 190,000 users which according to Docker themselves makes up about 5% of their total user base. Docker are encouraging users to change their passwords immediately. They've suggested that they became aware of the breach last Thursday and made the announcement last Friday. So to be fair to Docker, they acted quickly and have been upfront about it. Much like Citrix, I feel in these days when this is becoming almost inevitable, at the very least, honesty and quick action has to be expected, but thus far, Docker and Citrix are actually the exceptions, not the rule, as many others have just sat on the news of a breach in the past, rather than being upfront about it. 
And speaking of Citrix and their internal network breach, TechCrunch.com reported this week that the internal breach went undetected for six months. That is not to detract from what I just said, kind of praising them for how they reacted to it. The article does also state that they took action within 48 hours of being notified by the FBI. I would like to think that they're putting correct measures in place so that that kind of activity could no longer go undetected for so long within their environment. In a previous blog post from Citrix and also covered on an old episode of the podcast, Citrix did state that it is purely their internal network uh, and their services are not affected. At the time, they didn't indicate that customer data had been breached. It seemed like it was purely within Citrix's own internal network and Citrix's own data. And now for this episode's weekly webinar. On May 9th, I had the honor of presenting on a webinar with Jeff Pitch of Liquidware. He will share a lot of great information about FlexApp and the benefits Liquidware can bring to your EUC efforts. I will talk about application learning's benefits and where Liquidware sits based on the community what matrix that I mention quite often at the top of each podcast episode. So you can register today for that webinar that will be held on May 9th. And now for this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. Anthony Howell at theposhwolf.com, which is an awesome name for a site. Kudos, sir. He posted a pretty useful script. A PowerShell script that scours events on your primary domain controller to detect account locks and their source. I actually have a similar script that I run in my own environment. And for visual purposes, I also use a free tool called Microsoft's AD Lockout Tool. I will say the one great thing about the free tool that has a UI is that you can unlock a user's account who's experiencing an issue, target their account with the tool, and then watch it in real time to see if there are any more bad password attempts. And it'll also show you what domain controller bad password attempts are hitting, not just the primary domain controller. Whereas it appears the script at the moment is limited to scouring just on the primary domain controller, which is fine because that information is also stored at the primary domain controller after the final bad password attempt before locking the account. And because of that, the script could prove quicker than waiting for bad password attempts. I use my own script to run when someone calls about getting locked out. It can scour the logs and show the event, which can then let me see the source of the lock so I'll know where to go to force a logout before resetting and unlocking the password. This script is much like that. There's a lot less back and forth than with the AD lockout tool, so I recommend trying it out. And that's it for another episode. If you're going to the EUC Masters Retreat this weekend in Scottsdale, Arizona, I'll see you there. If not, I'll catch you guys next week on the podcast. Thanks so much for listening.